Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year, and this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you today. Today I wanted to continue the, the episodes where we've dived into some of the doubters' personal stories. We, uh, we titled these episodes, we, we started off with, uh, and it's likely going to be premium for a little while here, but we had the first episode, which was Who is the Doubter? And the idea here was that we've, we've got some research, some data on who is the doubter generally. And so you want to go back and you want to listen to that first episode and you want to, you want to hear that first before you jump into these personal stories. And so we went through the data. We talked about these folks, their income level, their college education, their, the, the way in which they've come to have lost or transitioned in their faith and trying to get a better idea of who they are as a whole, uh, in their totality. And we followed that up with an episode, which was those who doubt part one where we shared some of those personal stories. Today we've got Those Who Doubt Part 2. And and again, we want to dive into to more of the... Um, and in doing so, we today we're going to share several stories, uh, three or four of them. One of them was a mission president, and, uh, and, and I think that will be quite informative. Um, but let's start with, with a couple here. Let's start with a, uh, an anonymous male. His age is 25 to 34. His income level is twenty five thousand to fifty thousand. He's uh, education is graduate school. He's a lifelong member. His uh, situation prior to crisis: he was a full tithe payer, regular attender, temple recommend holder, adherence to the word of wisdom. He's been a full time missionary, a temple worker, Sunday school teacher, primary teacher, nursery, gospel doctrine teacher, ward mission leader, elders quorum presidency, financial membership clerk. He says I was always the good one in primary. At sixteen, I was still fully active, but I had some questions about why the church was run the way it is, why we don't consider women to hold the priesthood, why dads had to be away from their kids so much for church stuff, and why my non-member friends tended to do a better job of living the gospel than my church friends. When I attended the broadcast of the Palmyra Temple dedication, however, I felt the Spirit very clearly tell me, this is the church where I need you to be. I threw myself into church stuff, BYU, where I took the honor code very seriously, mission, marriage, magnifying my callings. And then in 2007 and 2008, some of the old questions started to bubble up. I was troubled by other members' adoration for Mitt Romney, even though he supported torture, which had been legally justified by another Mormon priesthood holder. And he names a person there. I don't want to share that here. He says, I watched Prop 8 unfold, feeling like I had to support it because the church which I owed my loyalty was behind it, and I voted for a similar measure that year in my own state. The morning after the election, I realized that I had friends in same-sex marriages in California, and my church had just divorced them. I got to know more LGBT folks who are honest, good people, dedicated to living a worthwhile life. And whenever I tried to defend the church's position or muster arguments against gay marriage, it felt false and empty. Around this time, my wife and I had our first kid, and shortly thereafter, 
I got called as a ward mission leader. To make ends meet, my wife started graduate school a year after I did, and about three months after our baby girl was born, I started staying at home with her much of the day. Doing my work while she napped, I learned how hard it is to stay home with a baby, how socially isolating and how alienating, as one wonders, who am I really? And this was also how my wife felt. We started to question whether gender roles were as clear-cut as we had been taught. Regarding the word mission, we had a gung-ho mission president who instructed the missionaries to baptize new members after they had been to church just twice. Lots of Sunday afternoon baptisms, 50 in six months. Lots of tracing, no, sorry, lots of tracting in poor neighborhoods, very little retention for which they blame the ward. When I tried to suggest to the missionaries to contact in grad student neighborhoods as well, this got back to the mission president as me saying, quote, we don't want more, and then he uses a racial slur here. He, he kind of stars it out, but you know what word it is, and, and I'm not going to repeat it, but we don't want more of, and again, the racial slur in this ward, unquote. He says, I'm a grad student studying race and slavery. This was very hurtful. I knew from general conference talks and other trainings, missionaries were also supposed to help with retention and less active work. I told the missionaries, and once the mission president, this. When they wouldn't listen, I asked my dad, a sunstone-reading liberal Mormon, what do you, what do I do when I receive a commandment from a priesthood holder that I believe to be wrong? His response, do it anyway and you'll be blessed. This was deeply unsatisfying. Finally, a member of the presidency of the 70 told the mission president the same thing I had told him. He straightened up. I resolved to never again do something just because a priesthood leader said. Remaining fully active but removing myself from missionary work in the elders quorum and diligent home teaching for a while, my wife and I happily served in nursery. Since then, I've been rebuilding my faith. I learned that we believe prophets to be fallible, that all people imperfectly distill messages from the Holy Ghost. That's helped me resolve a lot of my concerns. I still doubt the ability of an all-male leadership to really tackle domestic abuse on a systemic level and quietly disagree with many of the teachings about LGBT issues and gender roles. But I'm fully active and just called as a first counselor in Elders Quorum Presidency with special assignment to set up more community service projects to which we can invite prospective elders and their significant others. That I will do most happily. So there's a pretty soft one, a, a person who's still participating, uh, still still going, and and some of these issues that are bothering bothering him. I want to move to the next one. And again, we've got one we're going to share from a mission president today. Um, but this one is an anonymous female, 35 to 50. Her income level is higher, higher. She makes between 50000 and 100000 Her education level is she's a college graduate. She's a lifelong member. Prior to her crisis, she was a full tithe payer, regular attender at Sacrament, Temple Recommend holder, and she adhered to the Word of Wisdom. She served as young women's president, a primary presidency, a full-time missionary, primary teacher, nursery, choir, music. She says, my husband and I were fully active, married in the temple, average LDS folk. I always felt more righteous and, and obedient than my husband. I'm a returned missionary, and he left his mission early and has always struggled with holding callings in the church. About a year ago, my husband first admitted to me that he felt he didn't have a testimony and never really did. He questioned whether he could ever really know anything spiritual, and that in turn made me start to question. He was also angry with our bishop for chastising me as a woman's president for conversing about tattoos and breast augmentation. The parents complained, and I was called in for a chat. It was very humiliating. About the time I was released as young woman's president in August 2012, I read something somewhere in a newspaper, I think, about second anointings. There was a link in the article that directed me to mormonthink.org. 
I began reading voraciously and was shocked at what I discovered. I was skeptical at first, but after reading the bios of the administrators and the purpose of the site, I felt that it wasn't an anti-Mormon website and that I could trust the literature. I also amped up my reading of Rough Stone Rolling, a book I had begun reading years before. Still am not finished. I became obsessed with getting to the bottom of it and finding out the real Joseph Smith. The biggest shockers were that Joseph translated the Book of Mormon without the plates, with his head in a hat that contained a seer stone, and also that there were several versions of the first vision. I never knew that the texts contained in the Pearl of Great Price were not literal translations of the scrolls that Joseph had obtained. I already knew that Joseph was a polygamist, so that was not a huge deal. Although still hard to comprehend, I did not know Joseph ordered the destruction of the printing press and that it was a factor in his eventual assassination. I am disturbed by the amount of information that is withheld from church members, and although I have never been a black and white believer, I feel like my foundation has been severely shaken. Once I begin to doubt Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, I found myself wondering whether or not there actually is a spirit, since that is how I previously determined that the Book of Mormon was true. I found myself daily questioning whether or not there was a God and an afterlife. My family does not know this is happening to me, It would absolutely devastate my mother. It gives me ulcers thinking about how one day this must actually be confronted. I've spoken with a few trusted friends outside my ward, and they have been wonderful. My bishop knows nothing except that we haven't paid tithing in over a year, and my husband asked to be released from his stake young men's calling. I actually kind of wish we could go in for an interview and be upfront about everything. I feel that when I attend church that I have a huge secret, like perhaps how a closeted gay person would feel. I'm still interested in attending the LDS Church. I think it affords wonderful opportunities to serve and to feel uplifted. My husband is leaning towards a more secular approach. It is difficult to navigate these waters, especially with our three young children. I'm grateful to mormonstories.org and mormonmatters.org and that I can find people and experiences that I can relate to. I don't sense that any of my friends in the ward are going through anything remotely similar. We still attend church. I am currently the ward organist. I hope to be upfront about our church's history with my children to prevent something like this happening to them. I also hope to be open-minded about their decisions in the future, about whom they wish to marry, and whether or not they want to go on a mission. I don't want to use guilt or pressure to push them into anything. And so you can see this person still goes. They're attending, but, but this has gotten really messy for them and, and they have, she has lots of doubts and he's taking a much more secular approach. And, and it just, it breaks my heart to hear these stories because they're happening every day. Every day, new people are discovering this information and, and their shelves are coming down. Um, let's move on to another story. This one comes from an anonymous male. Uh, and then after this one, we'll read the mission president one and we'll conclude this episode. This is an anonymous male between the ages of 35 and 50. He makes over $200,000 a year. He has a doctorate degree. He's a lifelong member. Prior to his crisis, he was a full tithe payer, regular attender at sacrament service, temple recommend holder, and he adhered to the word of wisdom. He he held the callings of a full-time missionary, Sunday school teacher, young men's presidency. He says, I was very active prior to my crisis. I started to have misgivings about the behavior actions of the leadership over the past decade or so. To list the highlights, evasive leaders in interviews on TV, Hinkley not answering yes when asked if he is a prophet, brushing off man becoming God questions. Holland seeming extremely evasive with the BBC. Prop 8 and politics, the church I grew up with, grew up in, taught us to be involved politically, but seemed to stay out of politics itself. When did we start legislating our morals? The handling of the MTC expansion, very dirty politics, 
to tell residents they could act, vote how they liked, then send an invitation from the brethren to vote the party line. This felt like spiritual blackmail. City Creek Mall, if we have billions sitting around, seems like there could be, <clears throat> seems like there could be a much more worthy cause to put it to good use. Priestcraft. How in the world is it acceptable for the prophet and apostles to write books on spiritual matters, then sell those books for profit? This is by our own definition, priestcraft. We believe they are a direct link to Heavenly Father, so when did it become okay to sell their spirituality? Can you imagine Isaiah telling the people he had some good thoughts on repentance and they could read them for only a few shekels? Financial opacity. Where is my money going? I've donated a lot of money over the years. Almost every other church in the U.S. gives its members a detailed report showing how much they received and where it goes. If the money is legitimately being used for building up the church, what would be the harm in releasing that information? It looks like they, you, are hiding something, particularly when you change the tithing slip and put a disclaimer on it indicating that donations will be used however the church pleases, regardless of how you want them used. Paid clergy. I was somewhat... I was somewhat disturbed to find out that GAs and higher make a salary. Call it a stipend or whatever you want. They are making money for their spiritual work. I wouldn't be particularly opposed to that if it weren't kept secret. There is speculation about millions being paid when someone becomes an apostle. Again, transparency in the finances would solve this. If there wasn't anything shady going on, that is. Changing doctrine. What good is a prophet if you can't tell when he is speaking as such? How is it that so many statements made by past prophets now are invalid, not taught as doctrine, Adam, God, blood atonement, Negroes being fence-sitters in heaven, etc., etc., etc.? Was the prophet who first taught those things wrong? If so, how would I know which words of the prophets to believe? If not, why aren't these things still taught? These issues sparked some initial doubt in my mind over the years. Then the church recently made the changes to the scriptures, including backpedaling on the intro to the book of Abraham. This sparked my curiosity, and I started digging into church history. From there, I discovered all the troubling issues. My list of those issues would be, quote, the usual, quote, unquote, and I won't bother to list them. How did I feel upon discovering this new information? I felt sad and betrayed. Only my wife knows of my disbelief. She was very upset at first, but has grown to accept it and question some things about the church herself now. My current relationship with the church is undecided. I don't believe it is everything it claims to be. I don't like the black and white truth claims the church makes when there are so many obvious mistakes, problems with the church's past, as well as shifting doctrines and beliefs. What might have prevented my faith crisis and what might rebuild my faith now? I don't know. More honesty, less whitewashing of church history, financial transparency, and not selling spirituality. And so you can see again, you know, just a, a smart person who runs into the issues and runs into the same issues that the rest of us are running into and uh, and just feeling betrayed, feeling a loss of trust. And and so with that, we'll go to our final uh, personal experience here. And this one is of a, uh, of a mission president, and uh, we'll conclude with his story. This gentleman is over the age of 75. His income level was between $25,000 and $50,000. He has a doctorate degree. He's a lifelong member, full tithe payer, regular attender at sacrament service, temple recommend holder, adhered to the word of wisdom. Those were his traits prior to his faith crisis. He served as a gospel doctrine teacher, young men's presidency, young men's president, elders quorum president, financial membership clerk, executive secretary, high priest group leader, stake auxiliary calling, bishop counselor, bishop, 
stake presidency counselor, served as a stake president, and then served as a mission president. He said, I was active and faithful from my youth. I never, quote, knew, unquote, as others claimed, that the church was true, but I believed that with faith and obedience, I would someday know and come to understand. I had read much in church history, the discourses, etc., and had questions but determined to be faithful. As a stake missionary and mission president counselor, I recognized and rationalized the half-truths and untruths missionaries taught. As a member and teacher, I had found the church curriculum and teaching outline and guidelines for members ludicrous, but I persevered. President Hinckley's declaration on April 6th, 2003, that Christ came to bring war, specifically the Iraq war, triggered my first real doubts and my first real searching. As I read and reread and expanded my reading, it was the realization that all or most of the prophets and many of the apostles were all were dishonest and that dishonesty is all pervasive in the church. And that was a challenge. But the greatest challenge was the realization that there is nothing, absolutely nothing in the church scriptures or in the teachings of the prophets, which is an enduring truth. The only constant is change, revision, and evasion. The many inconsistent spiritual teachings and the countless inconsistent contradictory and even disgusting teachings of the prophets, inspired by the Holy Ghost, defy rationalization and eventually accommodation. I lived with and acquiesced in and participated, to my regret, in the cult worship of one man and a small group of men in the near total forgetfulness of the teachings of Christ. I covenanted to sacrifice all, even my integrity, though I didn't realize at the time for the church. I never was put under a covenant to sacrifice for Christ or for truth. Of course, I came to recognize Christ is of lesser importance than Joseph Smith and the church, and that truth is to church doctrine and church history is unknown in the church. Let me say that again. Of course, I came to recognize Christ is of lesser importance than Joseph Smith in the church, and that truth as to church doctrine and church history is unknown in the church. On a personal level, I chafed at the intellectually oppressive church thought policing, even as I enforced it and have come to regret that aspect of my church service. My richest memories and deepest regrets and my most valued friendships are all embedded in the church. But I have come to realize that I was used and used others, and that the ma- vast majority of church members are like sheep, victims of morally twisted organization, which perpetuates itself by preying on its members. Still, I don't plan to leave the church. Where would I go? I'm as active as health permits, though I hold no position other than home teacher. Perhaps there are explanations for the factual issues I face. If so... An atmosphere of honest, open discussion would have resolved the... No doubt my feelings resulted in the church leaders I have known, which I revered during my lifetime, if they had honestly faced and explained or repudiated the teachings and actions of earlier leaders. Moral, principled leadership by President Hinckley and decent, tolerant leadership by President Monson, both of whom I've had personal interaction with regarding gays, would probably have infinitely increased my respect. I cannot say for certain, however that these would have obviated my absolute rejection of polygamy as divinely inspired or the apparently insurmountable issues raised by the conflicting first vision versions, Joseph Smith's dishonesty, etc. Still, a little honesty would have gone far. I doubt that anything could unring the bell and restore faith and confidence. At the very least, the church and its leaders, all of them, would have to recognize and repudiate the vast ocean of dishonesty, deceit, secrecy, mistakes and misconduct of the past 
and open the church's archives and records, they would have to respect the members as children of God and not subjects of prey and exploitation and put the interests of the members first. Then perhaps I would regain confidence. That, of course, will never happen. It's it's my hope, folks, that as we read these, as we listen to these being read, that we'll better understand these folks. And, and their story is our story in, in many ways. And yet each of these stories is also different. And I, and I think it's of value for us to understand the pain that these folks are going through. And again, many of them still trying to make this work and still attending. And then again, note something I said in the earlier episodes regarding this. This, all of these stories were presented to church leadership. And I know with absolute certainty that one of the top 15 read every single one of these personal stories. They're aware of it. The church leaders are aware of the data. It's been presented to them. They're aware of these stories. They know what is happening. They know why it is happening. And, and to some extent, like, we've got to figure out a way to wrestle with, with making, intentionally making space for people to feel authentic, to be honest to their truth seeking, and to still be fully faithful Mormons. And I don't know how we do that. Unfortunately, there's not someone like me in that group who can say, here's how we do it. And, and I do have thoughts. I do have things that we could do that I think would fix this once and for all. But nobody's listening to, to folks like me. And and so it's my hope, finishing this up, that, that you're getting something out of these stories. Again, you can just skip the episodes if you want. Just go read them. Just go read them for yourself. And, and pick out stories that match your age bracket or your education level and, and see if the, what the similarities are. Uh, what I want to happen is that people don't feel such a disconnect between what the church teaches and asks of them versus what their integrity and authenticity requires of them and that we can figure out a way to bridge that so that people can have a safe space to be different, to hold a different ground, and to still be fully in which should happen if Mormonism truly is, as Joseph said, Mormonism is truth. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless you. In the name of Jesus Christ. 